Thanks to Luke and the praise team for just glorifying his name. That was beautiful and wonderful. And we're going to continue doing that in our teaching today. One of the profound statements of Jesus is found in John fourteen six, where he says something, I mean, that unless it's true, you would just see it as incredibly arrogant. He says, I am the, this Jesus talking about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I just want you to imagine the, the arrogance, the delusional self-exaltation in that statement. Unless it's true. Unless it's true, then it's a massive gift to the world. A massive important piece of information and we as believers believe it's true we believe he's telling the truth he is saying that he is the way to God that when we follow Jesus we will end up right where we need to go not just in this life but in the next one and that's with the father in heaven that's why we're calling this teaching series this is the way we're following Jesus his entire life and ministry and teachings and his work and we're following him through the entire book of Luke. So last week in chapter 9 Luke dropped a bombshell piece of information as the author of this book, okay? As a storyteller, he inserts one of the things that happened in Jesus's life that uh, that is an announcement so big. It's so big that the reader as they're reading through it, they get to chapter 9 and they hear this it's going to orient the rest of the story. Like the rest of the story is impacted by this piece of news from last week. It's so big that it reorients the reader to everything that they have thought they knew so far. That's how big this piece of information has is. And so the best modern example that came to mind for me to try to capture what Luke did last week uh, just to juice up the intensity for you of what's going on in Luke's book is the Star Wars trilogy, okay? I think it's intergenerational enough that, that most in here are familiar with that. The Star, Wars, the Star Wars trilogy, it's actually a set of three trilogies, and it's kind of strange in that when it started, back when I was 12-ish, they started with the middle three. There was more that had happened, but we don't know. I remember the, you remember the words that go up at the beginning at the movie, and they disappear into space, dun-dun-dun-dun, right? And I remember sitting there, and it said episode four, I went, what? This new movie, episode four? What? Where's one, two, three? Anyway, I watched the movie, and I got to know, you know, a little bit of the story and some of the main characters. In particular, Luke Skywalker is kind of set up as the hero, Darth Vader. He's like the representative of everything evil, right? And so you watch this whole movie. Then you get the second movie, The Empire Strikes Back. You watch that whole movie, and then it happens. A piece of information is dropped on the viewer of the movie that changes everything. And it's in one of the most famous cultural scenes in any movie ever, while Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker are battling with their lightsabers, Vader says something. It's put in the mouth of Vader, something that changes everything. He says, Luke, you know it. Yeah, say it with me. Say it right. Luke, I am your father. See, you know you know, I mean, you're like, in the theater, you, it changes everything for all of the rest of the movies. Even when you go back, you never forget this, 
unveiling of this special relationship between Luke and Darth Vader. He's his son. What? It just, it changed everything and it reoriented everything you thought you knew it in the stories that you had read so far. That's what happened last week. Luke did that. After a suspenseful buildup, we learned who Jesus was. He's the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ of God, the Savior, the Anointed One, the Holy One, the One who would save the world, who would bring God's kingdom, who would rule that kingdom. He would make everything new. He would set all things right. He's that guy. And the Jews had been waiting for him for a long time, and it was revealed, this is the one. But what he says next, what he says next after he acknowledges, and it is acknowledged by Luke, that this is that one, what he says next changes it even more and is even more jaw-dropping because he told them something. With all that credibility now, being that person, he told them something that would explain the kind of kingdom he's bringing and how he would lead it and how he would set it up. And it was a far cry from what Everyone who's watching this movie, everyone thought. He said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. That's right, of course you're going to Jerusalem. That's the capital of the kingdom of God that you're bringing. Of course you're going to Jerusalem. But without missing a beat, he says, to die. To suffer at the hands of men and to die. And then I'll be resurrected. As shocking and amazing this news is, what was most shocking for them was, that's not my picture of who this awaited, anointed one of God was supposed to be. And that's not the kind of kingdom he's supposed to be bringing. He was supposed to be bringing something more like the United States of America, or the kingdom of England, or in their day, the Roman Empire. He was supposed to be bringing the kingdom of God and set up his government and and he was going to be bringing peace to the earth through the means that every nation tries to do it, through power. But that's not what he was doing. So this huge gap between what they thought this awaited one was going to bring and what he was actually going to bring, how he was going to rule versus how he's actually going to rule was so wide that Luke spends the next 10 chapters away trying to explain it. Luke, at the end of chapter 9, we didn't get this far last week, but he puts into, he says that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The next 10 chapters, from chapter 9 to chapter 19, is that journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. Why? Why did Luke put all this in there? We know why he's here now. It's the most important thing for any human being to ever have happened for him to die and to be resurrected. Why 10 chapters? Because in chapter 19, it's just one week later, he dies. Why not jump to that? Why, Why did Luke put all these other stories in there? Because the gap between what they thought the kingdom was and what it actually was was so huge, it makes perfect sense that Jesus needs to explain himself. He needs to explain it. He needs to unpack. He needs to reorient them because this is shocking. This is shocking. And so that's what we're doing in the next 10 chapters. Before he gets to why he's come, and we now know why he's come, before he brings and ushers in that kingdom in its fullness, then we now want to learn what's this kingdom about? What's it like? 
these stories are weaved together to explain that. And we start in chapter 10. So let's get going. Chapter 10 begins very similar to chapter 9. It's Jesus sending out his disciples again to the surrounding towns. He sends them out two by two, and they're to go on ahead to these towns, and they are to do. He gives gives the same instructions to his disciples in chapter 10 that he did in chapter 9. Go and bring the kingdom. Preach the good news of the kingdom. Bring healing the healing of heaven down among the people. Have spiritual authority. Drive out demons. Demonstrate the nature of the kingdom that I'm bringing. And so they're all sent out to do that again. The only difference between chapter 9 and chapter 10 is the number. Here, your NIV says there's 72. 72 disciples. There were only 12 before. And so what is that about? What's Luke trying to convey? The first thing he's clearly trying to convey is that this movement is picking up speed. It's picking up momentum. And Luke doesn't just end here. You'll see numbers all through the rest of the book and then in his volume two in Acts. You'll see that this movement, this kingdom he's bringing, as subversive and unusual as it is, is growing. It's growing. It is permeating the world. So that's the first thing that he's trying to capture. But what is this number? What is this 70 does that have significance? In my study, it does. And you've got to remember that numbers always, almost always have significance in Scripture. There's all, which makes it really fun and kind of mysterious and a puzzle to study Scripture. What do these numbers mean to those people that were reading it initially? And so it's in verse 1 that Luke, said, Luke has this. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and th- sent them two by two ahead of him in every town. Now, there is, in the original copies, original, the, the, the earliest copies of the book of Luke that, that they have found, there is equal, equal times you find in those historical documents the number 72 and the number 70. This is actually going to help us know what this number means, ironically, that there's two numbers. So the reason there's two numbers is because in the Hebrew scrolls, in the Hebrew scrolls, they're over here, that it's there in Genesis 10, there are 70 nations listed. And from that time up into the time of Jesus, that represented the 70 nations that were believed to be in existence on the whole world. 72 was used in the Greek translation of those Hebrew scrolls, the Septuagint. Some of you may know that name. And that was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. All right? It was done about at least 100 years before Jesus. So depending on maybe some like Luke who were Greek followers and then some like Matthew who were you know, Jewish followers, that might make a difference. And when they were translating the Hebrew into Greek and or they were translating the book of Luke into these copies and sending them out, why it is. Now, why am I telling you that? Because either way, either way, the number represents all the nations that were believed to be in existence. And what Luke was saying here is that this kingdom that Jesus bringing is not just for one people group. It's not just for the Jews. It's through the Jews. He said that from the beginning, but we forget. We get all exclusive. We draw lines of boundaries. It's for everyone. This message is for all of the nations. Now the text goes on and gives them instruction 
that I think we need to hear, and that is how do you advance this kingdom? If not by military might, like every other kingdom does, how are we supposed to advance it? And in his instructions to the 72, he tells them to not forcefully preach this good news, just to preach the good news. Don't force it on anyone. Remember, we already have a parable in Luke where we're taught to be seed chunkers, right? We just chunk the good news out there into the world, and whether it falls on good soil or not, it's none of our business. We're just faithful. He's fruitful, right? We don't do that. So that means we don't force this on anyone. Listen to this. He says, go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. When you enter a house, say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Not, if there's not peace there, then this is too important. You get them to understand. He says, when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you, heal the sick who are there, and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Note that. If they're receptive, tell them the kingdom of God is near But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into the streets and say, we wipe this town's dust from our feet, yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. Whether they are receptive or rejecting, it's the same message. Same good news for everyone. Whether they're receptive or not doesn't matter. We just, the kingdom of God is near. The good news of the gospel You don't force it. You don't take over that because the kingdom is forcefully advancing like all other nations forcefully advance, like Rome forcefully advanced peace. Nope. You just say it, let it go. God's in charge of the growth. And so I want you to notice that, that if this kingdom, the one we're still trying to advance, is going to advance, it is done by invitation. That's it. It's an invitation. It's not going to advance through force. So one more thing to note about this sending. It's actually when they return. In verse 17, the 72 return and they are pumped. They are pumped. They've got this. What they saw Jesus doing, they're doing. This isn't just the 12. This is a few more. And they are like, I can't believe it. I I have spiritual authority as I walk this earth. I'm casting out demons. I'm curing the sick. This is incredible and they are just rejoicing that they've gotten to do what Jesus is doing and Jesus then has two responses to this first one and and they're worth noting the first one he says I have given you authority however do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you okay that's what they were doing they were rejoicing that they're these kingdom bringers right and they're rejoicing that the spirits submit to them saying don't do that rather Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What? Yeah, I mean, he's trying to remind them what we learned from him last week and the week before and that Paul summed up, remember? In 1 Corinthians. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, you're to be pitied more than all men. There is a larger story going on and it is more important of your joy that you're a part of that. Yeah, yes. You have kingdom-bringing power. That's great. And you're even being faithful. That's a part of the kingdom. That's a part of following Christ. And that's even how I'm going to teach you to pray, is let it be here on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what you're doing. But I'm telling you, no matter how much good you do down here, if it is not connected to the larger story, then you're no different than any other secular do-gooder out there. 
That's it. This is what's unique about the Christian social justice movement. It's connected to something that we know is more important, that is worthy of ultimate joy. And we don't ever want to mistake that. We got to do it. We want to be kingdom bringers. We want to take joy in that. But don't make that the end. Because it's not. If only for this life you bring good into the world, they are to be most pitied. Because that'll end. What I'm bringing doesn't, Jesus says. So he says that. And then ironically, his second response, right after he says, hey, kind of corrects how they're rejoicing. He then turns to God, his father, privately, and he rejoices, but for a different reason. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are your eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. After telling them this, he turns to God and he celebrates that this kingdom, God's kingdom, is not reserved for the educated, right? The privileged of the world. That's the kings. That's the upper echelon of culture. The king. Or religious upper class, like prophets. It's not for them, it's, but it's to little children. It's to those that have no education. It's to the commoner. N.T. Wright says that if you needed to have privilege, learning, and intelligence in order to enter the kingdom of God, then it would simply be another elite organization for the benefit of top people. He's saying here, this kingdom is for everyone, and he's celebrating with God. You're awesome. This is awesome. Who gets to be a part of this? It's for everyone. So next, Luke has one of those elite, learned, educated experts of the law show up stage left in the story. And this guy asks a question that just, according to the narrative, it's perfect timing for this question because we're learning that this kingdom is eternal in nature. It's not just temporary. We've, we've seen that being emphasized. So this is perfect placement for us as readers to engage with this question. So he asks something that has to do with eternity. It's in Luke 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit this eternal life? What's written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all you have and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked, well, who's my neighbor? Okay, pause right here. Because right here, Luke is exposing something in the theology of the Jewish nation. I don't know that there wasn't anyone. Probably everyone had this theology. And I want to bring it up because a lot of Christians still sometimes fall into this. Sometimes spoken, sometimes not, but always present, okay? This question from this lawyer was a exclusive question, right? He, He wants to, this eternal life that Jesus is talking about, he knows the most important commandment, right? Is love, God and love everyone. You know, love my neighbor as myself is what he heard actually. 
And so he needs to know what's the boundaries of my neighbor, right? Give me the line. Maybe it's farther than what I've always known it to be, but I need to know what that is. And so it's an exclusive thing because he wants to be sure to love whoever is included in that. That is typical, that's normal, that's us, them kind of thinking. It happens to all of us. And so Jesus responds with one of the most famous parables of all time, and he's exposing this exclusive mindset. The story is about a man traveling on a famous but dangerous pathway between Jericho and Jerusalem. It's assumed because of that journey was always often taken by Jews that this was a Jewish man, and he gets beat up. He gets mugged, beat up, and left half dead. And then a priest walks by and doesn't help him. And then a Levite, that's the spiritual tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel, he walks by, doesn't help him. It even goes to pains to say that they went on the other side of the road just to avoid him, right? Just to, just to avoid him. And then Jesus adds this shocking, teachable moment. A Samaritan walks by, and the Samaritan helps this traveler. So Samaritan, you may or may not remember, they are half-breeds. They're they got Jewish blood and Gentile blood, and there is serious animosity, hatred between the Jews and Samaritans, and it's shared. And there's social reasons for that, but maybe there's also theological reasons for that, which sometimes, unfortunately, breeds the worst kind of hate, you know, inside of us. We feel justified by God to, you know, and so a Samaritan, this put this lawyer and anyone listening just in a, in a, in a untenable situation. And so after he tells that story, he then says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law can't even say the Samaritan. He just goes, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, that's right. Take notes from that Samaritan in the story and go do that. And by doing this, Jesus, Jesus converts the question from this exclusive question of who is my neighbor And he converts it to what it should have been, is how do I neighbor? How do I neighbor? This is about qualities in me, not lines drawn among other people. Anyone is your neighbor. Anyone, particularly if they are in need. That triggers the Christian ethic. That that triggers the kingdom. You go in and, and invest in them and include them and build relationship with them. And you go do that and you invite them to healing and you be a neighbor that's what this means and so he's erasing the exclusive assumption in how we ask questions and turning it into this inclusive type of behavior and way of living it's amazing the last story in chapter 10 is this i'm just going to read it to you it's starting in verse 38 it says as jesus and his disciples were on their way where were they on their way to Jerusalem. We're on their way. Everything from here on out, they're on their way to Jerusalem because he is set resolutely to do his mission. So, as they were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him, to Jesus, and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. 
You're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary's chosen what's better, and it will not be taken away from her. So there are a couple of uh, takes on this text, interpretations and applications that, um, that I've heard. And they both come from, they're both useful, I believe, and, and good and contain truth. And they come from this comparison between Mary and Martha in this house. So the first one, I would, if I was doing a sermon on this angle of this text, I would name it, How Busyness Distracts Us from God. Right, that, and that's, this is a pretty straightforward reading for most of us. I think most of you probably read it this way, but I want to point out that's because you're coming from our 2022 perspective where busyness is kind of the spirit of the age. We all kind of understand busyness, the need to get things done, to be efficient, the busyness, the pressure to, that comes on us. That's how we read this. i just setting you up because that might not have been the first thing that they read in the first century, but I think this is valid. Mary's focused on Jesus, attentively listening to what he had to say. We equate that to coming to church, to to Bible study, to prayer, putting our focus on Jesus. Martha wasn't doing something bad. She was serving Jesus, right? She was serving him. But Jesus said in this instance, something in this instance, that good thing Martha was doing wasn't as good as what Mary was doing, her inner drive to meet these social expectations, right, of hospitality. They were cultural expectations to to take care of it when you have guests. She was doing the right thing. That's what you're supposed to do, but Jesus literally calls that right thing a distraction from what's better. Exact quotes. She said, he says, you're worried and upset about many things. And that statement is equated from this type of reading to all the demands that we have on us in our lives. And we don't ever want busyness. And I'm preaching this sermon right now. We don't ever want busyness of doing important things that are our responsibility to steal from us our focus on God, the priority of God. I think that's, a, that's true. That's true, and you can see that in this text. The second interpretation that comes from a comparison of Mary and Martha is, I would title that sermon, We Have Different Ways of Experiencing God. We all have different ways of engaging and experiencing God. And so this idea reads this story as if Mary and Martha are just examples of different types of spirituality. So Martha is an example of the active type. That's those of you who are all about doing and serving and you really experience God when you serve God, when you take care of somebody, when you take care of something for your church family and you experience God in that way. That's my brother Kyle calls this, you're bent, you know? And then Mary represents a more contemplative style and that's people who have a bent towards a little bit more mysterious connection with God, contemplating taking great truths and dwelling with them and letting them kind of soak in, going to the canyon and praying and being with God and just contemplative style. And that's how some of you experience God. And there's other styles, but, and I like using Martha and Mary as examples of a couple of styles or bents towards that. While um, I don't mind that, it's likely not the primary, it's not the primary intent of Luke. But I think that's a fine use. Remember, Scripture is like a diamond. It, it glitters no matter what angle. It glitters differently. But you can get a lot of outs, out of Scriptures, right? Looking at them in different ways. But, so 
what, what was the primary intent of Luke in his narrative? Well, N.T. Wright uh, is who... Now, I've told you all about this, but I haven't in a few weeks. I'm encouraging you because there's just no way I can cover everything there is to cover at the pace we're covering. I'm doing a whole chapter 10. Dimitri, a couple weeks ago, did a whole chapter. I mean, there's just no way. There's like five sermons a week, right? So, uh, so N.T. Wright, I've encouraged you, and we still have copies of this in the foyer. Luke for everyone, and it, it's going through at a great pace, and you'll learn a lot from here. I don't preach from him that much in here. I'll quote him here and there because many of you have taken me up on that challenge. You're reading it. However, the reason I promoted him is because he is considered one of the, if not the most scholarly scholars about the New Testament that's alive today, okay? Super smart. And so I am going to tell you what he says, Luke's primary thing here. He says that in that culture, the real problem, as you read that story, would not have been, Martha's problem was not the workload in the kitchen. It was that Mary had crossed a very established religious gender barrier. I want you to follow me here. Okay, and and I think then this will come to life to you. In that culture, okay, the culture... There were very clearly demarcated spaces socially, very demarcated roles for men and women in that culture. It's true in every culture, but very clear in that culture. And so in this scene, for men, men are in the main room visiting with the honored guest, okay? Women are in the back rooms, the kitchen and other places that are invisible serving the men. So for Mary... To have gone into this room with the men in that space, that would have bordered on scandalous socially. Would have definitely been unusual and uncomfortable, not just for Martha, for everyone, but it could be even considered scandalous. Now, to this, that's socially. To this, I want you to add the religious element, the Jewish element, okay? The phraseology that Luke uses here is that she was sitting at Jesus' feet. That's not a literal term. She's not literally at his feet, looking adoringly, listening to his teachings. This is a phrase you use to define the relationship between a student and his rabbi. Okay? Over in Acts, we have an example of this. Paul, when he was Saul, he sat at the feet of the great Jewish rabbi Gamaliel. Does not mean Paul sat at his feet. and looked. It means he is signed up and signed on to the school of Gamaliel. He is listening to that rabbi in order to, and I've told you this before, a disciple's goal is to become like that rabbi. To be like that rabbi, to carry the authority that that rabbi carries, to teach like that rabbi what that rabbi teaches. To teach others like this, all rabbis teach their disciples. Do you see what's happening here? She has moved into a distinctly male space, both socially And spiritually. And this would have been the thing that jumped off the page to those first century readers. Whether Jew or Gentile. That would have been the thing. My my best experience of this was, to put flesh on this, is when me and Jerry and a couple other guys, we went to India. And we would travel around and we were, our buddy over there, David, he's having us preach at these different churches. And whenever we go, whether it's his church, someone else's church, the men would sit on this side. The women would sit on this side. If there were chairs, the men, I don't know how they decide which men, the men have them. So the women are on this side and they're all on the floor. 
And I remember we were at this one place, and it was kind of cramped in there, and, and it was tight, and I was preaching, David was interpreting, but then I was going to finish, and the David was going to kind of finish it up, correct everything I got wrong. And so after I preached, I kind of moved. I was on the right side of the room at the pulpit. I just, I just went, and I went down to those blankets, and I sat down with the women. There was this, they noticed They noticed that because culturally, that's not where I belong. And so take that and amp it up by 100. That's what's happening here in this scene. It is dramatic. It is scandalous. And this is why Martha reserved her rebuke, not for Mary, but for who? Jesus. Now, granted, I mean, she says, do you not care? We'll just give her the benefit of the doubt. She doesn't know he's on his way to Jerusalem to die for her, saying, do you not care? All right? But that's what she says. And it was aimed at Jesus, not Mary, because Jesus is ultimately responsible for what's going on in that room. And she was trying to trigger Jesus to adhere to what everyone in the room knows is socially right and religiously correct. But Jesus didn't. And that is a loud moment in the story of what this kingdom is like. That is a loud moment. Jesus didn't just let her stay, by the way. And he didn't just defend her right to be there. He called Martha's focus on that unnecessary worry about many things. Isn't that interesting? It was unnecessary worry about many things. And then said, what Mary's chosen is better. It's better. It's better than what you've always understood. And it will not be taken away from her. Now, with all these stories in mind, let me tell you what hit me this week. And let me ask our elders and our ministers and their spouses go ahead and move around the room they do this so that you can just if anything's moving in you if you have any questions if you want to know about what it means to follow jesus or how you get involved in christ's kingdom or if you want to join this church family they are all moving just look at them they are all moving and available to pray with you to visit with you that's why i do do that so let me finish with what hit me through this a common stream through this chapter is how surprisingly inclusive the kingdom of God is. Did you notice? Jesus in his life and Luke in his organization of presenting Jesus' life, they go out of their way to show, to make it clear that the kingdom of God is a more inclusive place than the people of God thought. Hear me. I hope I made this clear. It would have been uncomfortably inclusive. And he didn't just start here. He started back in chapter 9. I just didn't get to it last week, and I didn't have time to cover it this week. But starting back there, after he declares who he is, each story from chapter 9 to chapter 10, you see this element. He says, you won't remember this story. You're just going to have to trust me. He says in the kingdom, children are focused on, even elevated, let alone included. Jesus, children are usually dismissed. But Jesus said, no, they are what the kingdom's made up of. He says in the kingdom, it's not the greatest 
that is the greatest. You know who's the greatest in this kingdom? The least. It includes the least among us. That's who's the greatest. That's how inclusive this kingdom is. No other kingdom's like that. It's always the greatest that are the greatest. In this one, the least are. He says Samaritans are included. That means to the Jew, the perceived enemy, ultimate enemy, and theological heretics are included in this kingdom. Can even be examples of what this kingdom is to you Jews. By using the number 70, he's saying it's for all nations. Not just this nation, all nations are included. He's saying he's not targeting the powerful and elite and the smart, but the uneducated common folks. And if all that is not provocative and uncomfortable enough, he's redrawing the boundaries of who can be invited to pursue Jesus along with this crowd of Jesus followers. If that weren't enough, he finishes by redrawing the boundaries between the roles of men and women within the ranks of the people of God. This text is about correcting inaccurate assumptions that his disciples and the world had about what they thought God's kingdom looked like. Even if it shocked them and made them uncomfortable. So our call, our call, our response, our application to this, the issues might be different, they might not. But they might be, and it doesn't matter. You pretty sure you got it all right? Yeah, they were too. They were too. Those are the people he's trying to talk to. And so we, in response to this, need to be eagerly correctable. To admit, I don't know what I don't know, Jesus. I want you to reveal to me what I don't know. And I can't wait. Because I know it'll be more aligned with what you intended. More aligned with what the kingdom is supposed to look like. So church, let me ask you, how do you approach exclusive? How do you have an exclusive mindset? Where's your line? We all have different ones, but we all have them. I have them. Where I move into discomfort. How do we approach Muslims? Our cultural view of Muslims as Christians is uncomfortable. Any other religious group. How do, how do we approach that? How do we approach immigrants? Legal or illegal? We've got our positions. And so how do we, how do we as kingdom citizens approach them? The LGBTQ community. How do we approach people in that group? Those that literally stand against Christians. We have them, right? And those that stand against Christian values. Literally, enemies of our faith. How do we, what's our posture towards them if we're going to be of our faith? Not just those we don't like. For whatever reason. Those whose politics conflict massively with our kingdom values. I know people on both sides that think that of the other. So I'm talking to everybody. What is your attitude towards that? And how do we approach our view of women's role in the people of God? Here's the good news. As uncomfortable as all of this may be for you, the good news is that the kingdom, what we're learning here, is the kingdom is so scandalously inclusive that it is altogether likely you can come to. Yep, you can come to. 
Anyone out there can come in here and run after Jesus with us. Including you. With your baggage, with your incorrect theology, with your struggles, with your convictions that have nothing to do with the kingdom, with your being deeply embedded in the things of this earth instead of the things eternal, even you can come. So come. Come and join Jesus in inviting anyone to come and pursue Jesus with us. So if you want it, if you're needing it this morning, let's stand, let's sing to this great God as he invites us to him and you are invited to us.